So it's December again, and even for non-Christians, on some level, Jesus is in the cultural air this month. Of course, in the traditional story, God sent him to be sacrificed as the price of forgiving humanity's sins, and his resurrection completes that mission by defeating death and granting believers everlasting life. Now, I was baptized in a Lutheran church and grew up there, but the main reason I'm no longer a Christian is I never bought the proposition that innocent Jesus had to die so that us wretched sinners could partake of divine mercy. And my general, general reaction to this claim is summed up well in an excerpt from Jan Martel's book, Life of Pi. I tried to imagine Father saying to me, Piscine, a lion slipped into the llama pen yesterday and killed two llamas, or today, and killed two llamas. Yesterday, another one killed a black buck. Last week, two of them ate a camel. The week before, it was painted storks and gray herons. And who's to say for sure who snacked on our golden agouti? The situation has become intolerable. Something must be done. I have decided that the only way the lions can atone for their sins is if I feed you to them. (laughs) Yes, Father, that would be the right and logical thing to do. Give me a moment to wash up. What a downright weird story, Martel concludes. What peculiar psychology. The early universalists in the tradition that makes up half of our original UU heritage also thought this was downright weird psychology and theology. Instead, they held that a loving, uh, forgiving God forgives everyone's sins, and that is just a merciful God's nature. Hence the name universalist, denoting universal or all-encompassing salvation that all souls are ultimately forgiven and reconciled with the divine so that there is no need for a vicarious atonement through Jesus. Yet symbolically, (coughs) archetypally, the story of Jesus imparts a profound spiritual truth. That forgiveness between and within human beings is so essential to our spiritual and emotional well-being that it can resurrect the dead and renew life. We'll start our fuller exploration of this by way of another story, the 2012 musical film version of Les Miserables. Obviously, I can't relate the topic, especially as this already got longer than usual. Forgive me. (laughs) But here's a pertinent piece of the tale. In 19th century France, our hero, Jean Valjean, spends five years as a convict for stealing bread and another 14 for trying to escape. Upon release, he's dogged a uh, dangerous person and dogged by papers that brand him a, a dangerous man and he can't find work or even shelter. Finally, though, a priest takes him in, but one night, desperate Valjean runs off with the silver. When the gendarmes catch and bring him back, they scoff that he had the gall to say that the priest gave him the valuables. The priest says, yes, he did give them, but he forgot the big candlesticks. He stuffs them in Valjean's sack and dismisses the dumbfounded officers. Jean Valjean is staggered by this act of forgiveness. 
then sent deeper into a spiritual crisis when the priest charges him with living his life for God. Valjean finally vows to be worthy of this, and under an alias, eventually becomes a successful and worker-friendly manufacturer. But he's relentlessly pursued by his former jailer, police inspector Javert, who periodically forces Valjean into hiding. However, the French Revolution is brewing, and eventually Javert himself is captured by rebels as a state spy. They give Valjean the honor of executing him. But like the priest did for him, he secretly lets Javert go free. Javert warns this won't deter him from his future duties, and indeed later when Valjean is retreating after a rebel skirmish, Javert trails and corners him. Valjean passes him, carrying a wounded comrade, and Javert orders him to stop or he'll shoot. But Valjean keeps walking, and Javert cannot bring himself to pull the trigger. So, here we have the powerful domino effect of forgiveness. A priest forgives a convict of theft and transforms the man's life. Valjean extends this compassion to others and finally even to his longtime tormentor, Javert. And Javert, in a sense, then forgives Valjean by letting him go. In offering acts of mercy, the ripples often run wide and deep. And because such ripples hold enormous healing potential, let's pause our story for a minute and explore a few thoughts and techniques about forgiving others. A great starting point is the work of Frederick Luskin, director right up the road of the Stanford University Forgiveness Project and author of the book, Forgive for Good. Among his key ideas are that forgiveness does not mean denying or minimizing our hurt, or that we no longer get angry at the injustice we've suffered. Neither is it a summons to forget, though truly forgiving does often allow memories to fade and their impact to soften. He also stresses that forgiving someone else can't depend, and I really want to stress this point, it can't depend on whether or not that person shows remorse or apologizes, because as long as their attitude or their behavior determines our emotions, our well-being, they retain power over us. We are not free. Nor, says Luskin, does forgiveness mean staying in a hurtful situation or letting someone shirk their obligations. For instance, you can forgive the offender and still choose to end or limit contact with them. You can forgive a negligent ex-spouse and still take legal action to ensure you receive child support payments. Dr. Luskin sums it up this way. Forgiveness and justice are not the same. Forgiveness and reconciliation are not the same. Forgiveness and condoning are not the same. His distinctions are important because they maintain our sense of justice and integrity while still helping us release the past. The late South African Anglican Archbishop Desmond Tutu strongly agreed that forgiveness is essential. 
During the brutal years of apartheid's institutional racism and later as a witness to the Rwandan genocide and other atrocities, Tutu witnessed some of the worst acts human beings can inflict upon others. Yet as the head of the South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission after apartheid fell, he also observed astounding instances of people forgiving those very acts. Tutu addressed audiences worldwide and reported that wherever he went, he always got the same question, how do I forgive? To answer it, in 2014, he wrote a book with his daughter, Mfo Tutu. Mfo is spelled M-P-H-O. She's a former Anglican priest, and the book is entitled The Book of Forgiving, The Fourfold Path to Healing Ourselves and Our World. Knowing that forgiving is not weak or passive, but in fact that reaching such healing often requires tremendous courage and resolve, they sympathize when people are reluctant to walk this path. But they also tell us that, quote, Many of us live our lives believing that hating the person who hurt us will somehow end the anguish, that destroying others will fix our broken, aching places. It does not. So many seek this path, and it is only when they stand in the aftermath of destruction amid the rubble of hatred that they realize the pain is still there, the loss is still there. Forgiving is the only thing that can transform the aching wounds and the searing pain of loss. The tutus say which path we walk boils down to a choice, retaliate or reconnect. Evolutionary biologists tell us that we are hardwired for both. When we're hurt, it's natural to feel an initial impulse to strike back but revenge is always costly. To paraphrase Gandhi, when we practice the law of an eye for an eye, the whole world ends up blind. Yet wounds and violations, whether physical or emotional, happen. And when they do, we need a method to reconnect. For the tutus, that method is the fourfold path. The first step on it they call telling the story of the injury, because stories have power. As just one illustration, countless people have recovered from various addictions and afflictions in 12-step and other support groups by basically telling their own stories and listening to those of others. Healing meets hope when we no longer bear our burdens alone. Step two is naming the hurt. Sometimes it may seem easier to just dismiss injuries and soldier on, but the tutus point out that many marriages and other relationships crumble under the cumulative weight of small unspoken hurts and their attendant resentments. Naming our hurt doesn't mean difficult feelings magically disappear. But when our hurt is not heard, our hearts contract. So trying to bypass this step does not serve the authentic forgiveness we want to achieve. This brings us to the third step in the process, granting forgiveness. This can be hard because it means a part of our life story that we've been invested in, that is how we were wronged, will now fade into the background. But the shadow side of the first two steps, telling our stories and naming our hurts, 
is that these can form an endless loop. Actually granting forgiveness ends it and moves us from being a victim back to someone who can again experience personal power and inner freedom. And the tutus stress <clears throat> that what enables us to forgive is recognizing our shared humanity with the person who hurt us. Drawing on his apartheid experience, Desmond Tutu writes, I know that were I born a member of the white ruling class at that time in South Africa's past, I might easily have treated someone with the same dismissive disdain with which I was treated. I know, given the same pressures and circumstances, I am capable of the same monstrous acts as any other human. It is this knowledge of my own frailty that helps me find my compassion, my empathy, my similarity, and my forgiveness for the frailty and cruelty of others. Returning to our earlier reading, author Terry Dobson looked upon the fierce drunk man on the train with dismissive disdain and was eager to punish the offender. But the elderly man in the kimono recognized the hurt behind the rage and therefore saw the burly man's inner frailty and shame and thus his humanity. And as we heard, seeing this was redemptive. This is the same merciful attitude Jesus offered in ministering to the sick, the oppressed, the mentally and spiritually tormented. And learning to apply this same awareness to a person who wronged us helps us realize that their actions were at least partially driven by the ghosts of their past, which can allow empathy and compassion to emerge. Even though we might not fully feel like granting forgiveness at first, it can often be primed by consciously deciding to do so, after which our emotions gradually catch up. When they do, the tutus speak of feeling like a great weight has been lifted or an intense sense of inner peace returning. Once we grant forgiveness, we move on to the last step on the fourfold path, deciding whether to renew or release our relationship to the person who hurt us. Because relationships and feelings can often be complex, this choice might not always feel immediately clear or complete. And it may partly depend on the other person's current posture toward us. But if the prior three steps, telling the story, naming the hurt, and granting forgiveness were taken with care, the choice to renew or release is likely to be a healthy one. Despite the many benefits of forgiving, the thought of making such efforts when another person was in the wrong can still feel unfair and thus engender reluctance, if not stubborn resistance. Yet really, what's the alternative? Continue to live with bitterness, toxic anger, vengeful fantasies, cynicism, numbness, inner and or outer isolation? Is that truly what we want? If so, look out, because such emotional states are the trans fatty acids of the soul having been scientifically linked to nasty physical effects, including increased risks of hypertension, of depression and anxiety, of substance abuse, and more. So again, we're faced with a choice, which the tutus capture in a poem of sorts. You have stood at this juncture before. You will stand at this juncture again. 
And if you pause, you can ask yourself which way to turn. You can turn away from your own sadness and run the race named revenge. You will run that tired track again and again. Or you can admit your own pain and walk the path that ends. I'm sure we'd all like to walk and reach the end of such a path. But if you find yourself hesitant to start, you might consider a different motivation from Oscar Wilde, who suggested, always forgive your enemies. Nothing annoys them so much. <laughs> Thus far, we've explored how to forgive others when they hurt us. Now let's very briefly consider what to do when we sometimes hurt others, which is basically to walk the same fourfold path, but from the other direction. That is, we can approach someone we've hurt and invite them to tell us their story of it. Listen to the core hurt this contains. Ask them to grant us forgiveness if and when they're ready and explore whether we can help renew the relationship or if they need to release it. How far we get in this is not fully in our control most of the time, but as an old adage goes, we're responsible for the effort, not the outcome. And of course, there is a third face to forgiveness, which brings us back to Les Miserables. Before we left off, a priest forgave convict Jean Valjean, who extends his compassion to others and even to his relentless pursuer, Inspector Javert, who in a way has just forgiven political revolutionary Valjean by letting him go free instead of shooting him dead. So, more than once up to this point, Javert has walked at the edge of towering Parisian rooftops as he sings soliloquies. I believe the last time he swore to capture Valjean and crush the revolution in one fell swoop. And now, after letting Valjean go free, Javert is up there again. Baffled, over Valjean sparing his life without condition and racked with guilt for not doing his duty and killing him, Javert sings out his soul's agony as his toes toy with the boundary of building and thin air. But inwardly, what he's teetering between is the law and clemency, justice and mercy, retribution, and forgiveness. And in all the forgiving of others that led to this point, finally Javert cannot forgive himself and ends his walk by purposely dropping to his death. As I shared, what struck me earlier in the story was the domino effect of forgiving others. We just touched on seeking forgiveness, which can also start powerful positive ripples. And here we see the third crucial facet of forgiving, pardoning ourselves. Inspector Javert could not continue the chain of transformation that forgiveness had begun because he could not forgive his own internalized shame and pain. And as I once heard someone say, pain not transformed is pain transmitted. Pain not transformed is pain transmitted. Does it just make sense that if, rather than forgiving ourselves for our inevitable human mistakes and shortcomings, we constantly berate and scold ourselves 
that sooner or later we might become angry, depressed, addicted. And one way or another will not such states inevitably be transmitted to others and or ourselves, as Javert did to Jean Valjean and ultimately to himself when his pain trans transmitted him some 10 stories down onto the pavement. So then, is forgiving ourselves, having mercy on ourselves, a self-indulgent luxury? Or is it a spiritual and moral imperative? I'm guessing my answer is clear. Because like forgiving another, forgiving ourselves is a profoundly restorative act, one that reconnects us with life and love and trust and hope, even the capacity for joy. And in this, both for ourselves and for others, forgiveness is actually less about the past and more about the present and future. The introduction to the Tutu's book is titled Into Wholeness. There they write, with each act of forgiveness, whether small or great, we move toward wholeness. Moving toward wholeness for ourselves and others doesn't mean everything is the same as before being hurt. And as I said, they sympathize when people are reluctant to walk this path. But the archetypal message of Jesus' resurrection tale is that no matter how severely we've been injured, and you can't get much more injured than being flogged, crucified, and entombed, our own spirit's resurrection is found through walking the path of forgiveness, of another, of asking another, and or of ourselves. And if we delay, we postpone our own deliverance. Which to me begs a question. If we're not going to forgive another or seek forgiveness or forgive ourselves now, when will we? Later? How many weeks, months, years, or decades in a later? And what if we don't have a later? Because we never really know, do we? Things happen. In the story of Les Miserables, Jean Valjean started as a convict. But in a different way, Inspector Javert was just as much a captive, one who may have lived had he grasped the wisdom found in the words of theologian and ethicist Louis Smedes. To forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that the prisoner was you. So as we compose the epic of our own lives, let it chronicle not revenge, but reconciliation. Not grievance, but grace. Not imprisonment, but liberation. Desmond Tutu and his daughter Umfo end the Book of Forgiving by speaking of this. Here is my Book of Forgiving. The pages are well worn. Here are the places I struggled. Here are the places I passed through with ease. Here is my Book of Forgiving. Some of its pages are tear-stained and torn. Some are decorated with joy and laughter. Some of its pages are written with hope. Some are etched with despair. This is my book of forgiving. This book is full of stories and secrets. It tells how I finally broke free from being defined by injury. 
and chose to become a creator again. Offering forgiveness, accepting that I am forgiven, creating a world of peace. Namaste, blessed be, and amen.